Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, April 18th, 2022. I'm John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, so uh, I have a big outrage to talk about, but I think we'll go, we'll go to that later. A New York Times outrage that is, that is uh, you know, we spend many days out of the year talking about new york times outrages but uh, this one this one uh, is of a is of a different order but i i think we want to end with that or give it give it sufficient space to really uh, talk it through so um i'm not we'll, we'll we'll get back to it uh it's on it's about uh it's about jews and passover and then maybe we'll talk a little about their coverage of the recent spate of violence in israel but um we were trying to figure out what to talk about today. And Noah said to me, well, you know, what about the, uh, the Republicans formally saying that they are not going to abide by or listen to or pay any attention to or play with this um, commission that was formed, I guess, in the 70s to or maybe even a little later to um, to arrange for the presidential debates in 2024. And, um, uh, you know, again, if you Twitter is a, you know, is like a toy, uh, toy universe. So it doesn't really matter. But there is a lot of outrage over the Republicans once again violating all norms in deciding that they will no longer, uh, you know, play in the sandbox of the bipartisan, you know, non-affiliated National Debate Commission. I just was um, asked over the the week and um, <clears throat> whether I had a take, and the answer is no. I don't have a take because I don't think it's anything valuable to devote any mental energy to, in part because it's probably a negotiating tactic. The Republican National Committee voted unanimously not to participate in sanctioned debates with the Commission on Presidential Debates, uh, in part because they were negotiating with the Commission and negotiations broke down. They didn't get what they wanted, so we're out. But it's a negotiating tactic because they're not really out. Presidential debates will happen. And the campaign will decide what they do and what they don't do. That's how it went in 2016 when Donald Trump and the RNC had sort of an arm's length relationship. And maybe this will have a, this will matter in the primaries, but I don't think it matters in the general. The commission, the, the candidates, the two campaigns will establish what they want to see out of the debates and they'll negotiate directly. And that's how the debates will, will happen, whether the, the presidential debate commission likes it or not. Well, I mean, the primary debates are not under the aegis of the presidential debate commission. The so presidential it doesn't even matter there. So the Presidential Debate Commission, people people have this idea that the presidential debates are some sacrosanct event in American history that is, you know, required of people. Um, there were very few presidential debates. There was the famous 1960 presidential debate between Kennedy and Nixon, which people said if you were watching it on TV, Kennedy won. If you were listening on the radio, Nixon won. Kennedy won because he looked better and Nixon was sweating, but Nixon had the better of the argument. Uh, there, there were very few debates, um, and uh, you know, then there was this, there was this gigantic moment, the political moment in 1980, when Reagan and Carter debated about nine days before the election, and Reagan mopped the floor with Carter, and it was really like the last, it was the moment at which it became clear to people that Reagan was probably marching in. To office, it had that famous, you know, moment where Carter sort of goes at Reagan's jugular, and then Reagan smiles and says, "There you go again," 
And that was pretty much it. And also Carter saying that, you know, he, he really turned to his daughter, Amy, to find out, you know, what to do about, uh, you know, nuclear weapons. Um, these were two, you know, sort of like uh, historical moments. And then in 84, there were two debates between Reagan and Mondale. And in the first debate, Reagan looked old and out of touch and slightly gaga. And uh, there was a widespread kind of delusional, uh, both uh, panic and hope that somehow, uh, this was the moment that Mondale was really going to come lap and, you know, take take Reagan on. And then in in the second debate, Reagan made that opening joke about not not uh, not exploiting his uh, his opponent's youth and inexperience. Mondale laughed and that was the end of Mondale. Right. I mean, it was sort of like Reagan proved that he could joust. And and of course, the whole thing was ridiculous because. Reagan won 49 states in 1984. That one debate wasn't going to wasn't going to kill him. And then in I think a couple of years later is when the decision was made to create a nonpartisan commission, uh, it's a corporation that would sponsor the debates and do all the technical work and making sure that there were good presidential debates and you would have Republicans on it and Democrats. It was, I think, a nonprofit corporation, a third party. They would find the venues, they would find the places, they would hire the moderators, and they would negotiate with the campaigns on all sorts of details. And those details have gotten more and more and more recondite as time has gone on. You know, how can they stand on platforms? Should they sit? Should they stand? Should there be one debate where they sit and two debates where they stand? Should there or should there not be an audience? How big should the audience be? And then, of course, the main issue, which is, who moderates and, and and how many journalists are on on the panel and of course it is, it is the journalists on the panel issue that is the thing that has driven republicans insane long before trump i mean the main i think that what remains the the moment the kind of telling moment of the presidential debates having been kind of played was in 2012 when candy crowley of cnn when uh, uh, Mondale and and Obama were going at each other, uh, uh, and uh, not Mondale, I'm sorry, Romney and Obama were going at each other. That was the debate in which, on foreign policy, that was the debate in which Romney said, you know, Russia was our number one antagonist, and and Obama said, you know, the 1980s wants its foreign policy back. And I can't remember no, what those this... were two different debates. Oh, they were. Sorry, one the one where. Um... Romney accused Obama of not calling the attack Benghazi in Egypt. Attack. The uh, oh, uh, was it oh, was the, uh, the Benghazi attack? Right, Benghazi sorry, attack. Filmmaker didn't, didn't was, was not saying that it was terrorism. Right, and, and right, then, and, and then, then and Obama right. like shakes his finger at Candy Crowley and goes, "No, no, 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 no. You know how this happened, right?" No, Candy at which point looked, she says, "Yes, she did." No, but she he. I think he literally said, "Look at the look at the quote." Candy, look at the quote. Wasn't that it? Let me. You guys talk amongst yourselves where I look up. Yeah, when I, I remember look up where he the, said candy. Look at the on. quote. But uh, the but what he rested it. I remember what he rested his hat on, which was in the immediate aftermath, the day after that attack in his speech about it. He said no acts of terror will ever shake the resolve of this great nation, alter the character or eclipse the light and values that we stand for. And that was his administration calling it terrorism. At, uh, subsequently, they spent the next two weeks saying it wasn't an act of terrorism. It was a radicalized guy who watched a YouTube video. But that okay, here it is. was where he put his hand. He's hung his hat on that statement. Here it is. Romney said, you said Obama thought he was walking Romney into a trap, but he could only have thought that if he knew something about Candy Crowley. Here's what happened. 
governor, if you want to, Romney, yes. Uh, quickly to this, please, says Crowley. Romney, I think interesting. The president just said something which, which is that on the day after the attack, he went into the Rose Garden and said this was an act of terror. Obama, that's what I said. Romney, you said in the Rose Garden the day after the attack it was an act of terror. It was not a spontaneous demonstration. Is that what you're saying? And then Obama says, like the, you know, the cat who got the cream, that's what I said. Romney said, uh, please proceed, Governor, says Obama. I want to make sure we get that for the record because it took the president 14 days before he called the attack in Benghazi an act of terror. Obama, get the transcript. Pointing to Crowley, he says, get the transcript. Crowley picks up a piece of paper and says, it, 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 he did, in fact, sir. So let me let me call it an act of terror. Obama, can you say that a little louder, Candy? Crowley, he he did call it an act of terror. Okay. So what Republicans said was Obama, there was a this was evidence the fix was in yes. that the fix was in that Obama knew, assumed that Romney would bring up the he didn't call it an act of terror for 14 days. And that he would then be able to say to Candy Crowley, pick up the transcript and show that he's wrong. Since then, the idea is that the fix is in. It's not just that, by the way. I mean, there have been complaints or there are complaints every year about the moderation. Um, but. Uh, you know, uh, and then there were all these weird things, right? Trump pulled out of one debate. Trump pulled out of one debate in 2016. He pulled out of another debate in 2020. Um, and then, you know, basically the idea is they're not going to live by this supposedly bipartisan effort, which, of course, then ends up being very, I mean, if you, here's the makeup of the board of directors of the of the uh, commission. So Frank Farenkoff, former National Republican Committee chairman, but Frank is, you know, in his 80s and, uh, you know, is basically sort of like a mushy, you know, squish Republican. Uh, Dorothy Ridings uh, and uh, Kenneth Wallach. Uh, Ridings and Wallach both basically being Democrats, uh, Wallach having been head of the National Democratic Institute. The board of directors as of now consist of John Danforth, liberal Republican senator, Charlie Gibson, former ABC News guy, uh, John Griffin, Yvonne Howe, Jane Harmon, uh, Democratic congressman, Antonio Hernandez, Reverend John I. Jenkins, Newton Minow. I didn't even know Newton Minow was still alive since he named, he called TV a vast wasteland in 1960, and it's now 19, and now it's 2022, and he was a grown-up then. Olympia Snow, liberal Republican, Richard Parsons, former head of um, Time Warner, um, so you have no conservative, you have no conservatives on this panel. You have no conservative Republicans on this panel. You have no one who is sort of like looking to make sure, or a conservative Republican who would have the consciousness of media bias. Let's just put it that way, or would be concerned, would be primarily concerned with the idea that having this mainstream event with mainstream journalists would by definition tack toward the Democrats, right? Well, 
the other question I have, though, is, is it, couldn't Republicans have just made an argument that I think a lot of Americans have when they tune out these debates, which is they don't really learn anything from the candidates. It's so canned. It's so scripted. Um, even the control of the moderator of the kinds of questions that are asked in the town hall format seems completely stilted. I mean, it would be we would learn more if we did one of two things, if we either created, made them go on the early morning C-SPAN radio call-in show with the mild-mannered C-SPAN host and the two candidates at that desk and they have to read the morning headlines and discuss them, like put the two candidates on like that, where people can call in on a Republican or a Democratic line and force them to actually spend time discussing the issues without without the sort of, you know, uh, all the, the, the fancy primetime stuff or send them out in different venues across the country where it's not moderated um, well, where they, the campaigns just directly agree, like they do during the primaries, where it's not where there's not this sort of good governance uh, oversight that that, as you've shown, John, is really not nonpartisan at all. Um, I, personally, I don't I never get much out of those debates. I mean, the, what I remember from the Trump Hillary debates is, is everybody was so concerned because Trump was menacing Hillary by standing behind her. I mean, there are all these weird little things that come out of the debates that have little to do with substance. Well, that's yeah, the thing. Really we can't make them do anything. Right. We certainly can't make them do anything right. that's not in their best interests. The, can the campaigns will negotiate with each other. And the debate commission exists as a formality to just sort of ratify the decisions that the campaigns would have made for themselves anyway. No, that's not that's that's not right. I mean, th that's why it actually is a matter of substance that the that the, that the RNC and the GOP have pulled out of the presidential debate commission, because the idea was, look, we're, we're never going to be able to agree on certain types of things. So if we hand this over to a third party, they will find journalists who will be acceptable to both sides. They will, you know, be Jim Lehrer, who could object to Jim Lehrer, who could object to Steve Scully of, 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 of C-SPAN. But who, who plays that role now? Who could you right. pick? No, yeah, but yeah. this is the point. The point is that what the RNC is saying implicitly, and it is true, is that if you go to a kind of conventional establishmentarian way of doing these things that adds a kind of you know it's like the it's like the house vig at a casino like that adds a two percent advantage to the democrats just by dint of the fact that it's an establishmentarian moment and what they want is to have somebody from cnbc or somebody from cnn or somebody like that, and those people are hostile to Republicans, and we're and Republicans aren't going to play the game anymore. Look, it's totally true. It's maddening and frustrating to watch the the, the bias and the the thumb on the scale. Um, but I still think that there's a mistake on the the, the Republicans' part here in that uh, refusing to participate. I think broadcasts a kind of loser mentality. Um, these things are unfair, um, uh, but because they're not sacrosanct, I think there's a, a, some sort of advantage in being seen to just deal with it. There's a way to handle that coolly and uh, prevail nonetheless. Um, Absolutely. And I think, yeah. And I think when you start yeah. walking away and refusing and sort yeah. of having a kind of ta tantrum, it, it it's creates a bad look for you. For but I mean, party. the dynamic, the dynamic is the Republicans are swimming against the tide a little bit. And it therefore means that when they do really well, like Romney did in the first debate in 2012, the effect may be outsized uh, in terms of, you know, he really knocked it out of the park, even though the conditions 
are a little unfavorable. You know, like the wind is coming in uh, from from center field, so knocking it out of the park is a lot harder. Like that's a that's a real thing. The question here then is, will they be able to come to terms? And of course, like I say, part of the weirdness here is that there are seventy different moving pieces in these debates, and what, what a debate could be. It could be moderatorless. It could have one moderator. It could have three. You could be sitting. You could be standing. You can be able to walk around. You can be able to stand still. You could be at a podium. You could be at a table. You could be at a round table. You could be at a square table. If someone's taller than somebody else, maybe you want them at a. You want them sitting down because it's not fair to have somebody taller. If somebody's taller, maybe he could be a further, a little further downstage so that the optics on the stage don't favor the taller person because he's a little further back receded in the background. But this and is like Harrison that. Bergeron. I mean, everybody, <laughs> it's not fair to the, I mean, if you happen to be tall and handsome like Romney was, like, why should you have to have your- Well, Obama's not off? tall and handsome. I mean, Obama's no, they both not were. tall and handsome. But the other, I, I yeah. will say the other thing that the other, to, to Abe's point and, and to your earlier point, John, I think it is, there is another weirdly inbuilt advantage for Republicans if they play the game, even knowing the deck is stacked, which is that how many times after a debate did we hear the mainstream media go, oh my God, Hillary was amazing. Everybody agrees. She won the debate. If you watch the debate and you're a conservative, you're like, she was terrible. She was like evasive on this and she looked dodgy and, and Trump actually kind of did dominate her. And I, I was no huge Trump fan, but still there were times where when the media narrative immediately coalesces around whoever is the Democratic candidate, then conservatives and Republicans can say, wait a minute, that's not right. And they they actually, it, it does in a way kind of create more loyalty for their own candidate because they have their own outlets now, their own news channels, their own ways of discussing their candidates. And also it creates the conditions for a kind of upset, um, uh, even among people who, you know, who didn't like their candidate beforehand. Um, when someone so exceeds expectations, uh, people take notice and say, wow, I thought, I thought he was going to be adult. I thought she was going to be Horrible, but uh, that, that, right. that's what that's what the media has been telling me. It's actually but, a really good point. Uh, they the, held their own. The Obama line about the uh, 1980s are back. That was a disaster for him. That foreign policy debate registered in the polls. So so the other interesting aspect of this, I think, is. We're talking about presidential debates, and there's there is not all that much evidence that the presidential debates make much of a difference except for 1980, maybe, although, you know, the historical facts of 1980 suggest that Carter was toast months earlier. It's just if you were living through it, it felt like a it felt like a turning point moment. The minute that Reagan said, there you go again, it was like you felt all the air go out of the tires of the of the Carter campaign. And that that was that was it. Like he had he just didn't know what he was up against and he didn't understand the appeal of this guy. And he thought that he was just, he was dealing with Bob Dole in 1976 or Rick Nixon or something. And that this was a different kind of person. And then of course there is 2020. There was the first debate in 2020. I think, I, I don't know for sure, but um, Trump was so disastrously bad in the first debate in 2020, particularly in the first hour of the first debate in 2020 when he was petulant and angry and he wouldn't let anybody talk. And he was so hyper aggressive when he could have been confident and, you know, more amused like that, that, you know, that question, which is, was he going to get the wine moms back or was, you know, were the people who voted, you know, to send him a message in night in, in, in uh, 2018, might they turn around and come back to him in 2020 was pretty much answered. Like it, he was, 
his worst self in that debate, not his best self, let's say. And so you could then look at that. And if you're part of the Rana Romney McDaniel moron brigade, you would say, well, I mean, that was not fair. And maybe if we structured it differently and we didn't let them run it, then, you know, Trump was, it just wasn't fair how, you know, it was all Trump and Trump just dominated the proceedings and he spoke over every, I didn't even remember who the moderator was, but he spoke over everybody. And then, and then Biden had that moment when he said, will you shut up? And then, you know, Republicans are like, oh my God, this is so, that was so disrespectful. Like, like Trump, like saying anything rude to Trump is disrespectful given who Trump is and the way Trump talked about people. Um, so, I mean, there may be something going on there, which is a kind of loser mentality, which is looking to explain Trump's disaster in 2020 through the lens of, you know, how the presidential debate commission wasn't fair. And then he didn't show up at the second debate. Remember, he didn't show up at the second debate because he was so stung or it was about it was about COVID or whatever, whatever it was that happened. He didn't show up at the second debate or schedule a second debate when he canceled. So they could have scheduled another time. I mean, logistically, the purpose of these debate commissions is to find locations and schedule schedule the debates, right? Because you need a certain type of location where you can have 10,000 10, cameras and, uh, you know, spin rooms and this and that, you know, like uh, uh, lay off the cost, right, on some university that wants the publicity or something like that. Um, so that's all going to have to happen organically anyway. Although, of course, if you do it right, these could be money-making events. <laughs> in some way you know if you have them almost as counter political rallies you know you have your people come and their people come you sell a lot of memorabilia you know pays for the renting of the of the hall and I, who knows i don't know anyway it's just interesting because uh because on the because this thing is uh 35 years old not 150 years old the presidential debate commission and and you know it's not sacrosanct and there's no history of, you know, the demand for debates. There never really were debates, you know, until really until 1960. And, and, uh, but I think one of the reasons to want them is that there, it's, there are these moments when politics stops and everybody takes a look at these two people, one against the other and is able to size them up as they stand in the same room together. I mean, it's, that's really not nothing. When else does that happen? When else are they, are they head to head? You know, I mean, they're head to head every day on TV. They're head to head every day in surrogates and panel discussions, but they're never head to head except in these, at these moments. And it's, 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 it's gotta be beneficial. I mean, how is it harmful? Let's put it that way, but it's going to be interesting to see because, um, and then, of course, you have all that kind of the crappy consultant class thinking they know it's sort of like jury selectors, you know, that they know how to play the game. It's like, no, this would be much better. Obviously, like in if Biden is running in 2024, the Republicans are going to do whatever they can to make him stand for two hours. Right. I mean, that's the exactly. Well, you know, Kamala like too. That. she's she's not great in, in a debate situation. No, but either. standing like what yeah. is it? What is it that you want from an 82 year old guy or 81 year old guy who say make him stand for two hours so he gets tired like that kind of game? I don't know. Let's face it. This is a pretty stupid debating subject, I guess, but it's kind of fun. Can I just point out that our friend Harry Anton at CNN, uh, who is a friend, has been on the show. 
uh, echoed me uh, on Friday in a way that alarmed Charles Blow of the New York Times so much that Charles Blow did an entire column based on what he said, where he said Biden's poll numbers are really terrible and that they're, in fact, worse than Trump's were at this at this time. So I'm only bringing this up to say that, you know, there is a there is a third party validation of the argument that I was making on, I guess, on Thursday, I'm sorry, um, about how, you know, Biden was in uniquely difficult circumstances because, you know, he actually was in worse shape uh, going into his midterm than Trump and Trump, you know, of course, the midterms were 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 disasters. Um, quickly on the midterms, there's a lot of whistling past the graveyard uh, by uh, Democratic election guys, uh, particularly like democratically aligned election guys who are like, no, really, there aren't that many seats. Even if you really look at it, there really aren't that many seats up for grabs. I mean, and two reasons, one of which is that uh, Republicans can't win 60 seats because you only win 60 seats when, you know, you're really making up lost ground and Republicans already made up ground. They're only five or four seats down anyway. So even if they only win 20 seats, the net result will be to be up 20 seats. And that's what they could expect from a blowout, you know, in, in previous years when they were down 50 or 60 seats. That is not what the historical data are suggesting here. The historical data are suggesting that when you see numbers like this, opportunities open up all over the place that shouldn't be open. And seats will be won that would never have been won under other circumstances by the out party. And candidates you never heard of and that and that the Democratic Party never heard of running on the Republican line will suddenly like charge forward and and you know take take something away from somebody who's been in office for 40 years and never had the foggiest clue that he was even in trouble. Um so I'm monologizing here. So other people speak. I would I would add that it's not it's interesting that, that Charles Blow's column was ridiculous, but there but there is another problem that the Democrats face, which is that they and we talked a little bit about this here and there with regard to Biden, but they still haven't figured out what their message is. There was this story over the weekend of, of some secret email list that all the progressive Democrats are on, and they're trying to figure out how to talk about inflation. And so, of course, <laughs> never underestimate progressives' desire to mix up a message, but they're like, this could be a gateway. Inflation is a gateway to authoritarianism. The idea being that if we don't talk about inflation in a way that connects to people, this will give an authoritarian like Trump the ability to come back in and say, he'll just fix it because we don't have a message. I'm like, you're missing the point. <laughs> like, talk about it in the way that most people talk about rising prices. But, you know, there's another part of the Democratic Party that's still blaming the media and blaming, you know, bad, you know, Republicans for, for focusing too much on inflation. Inflation has been a problem for many, 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 many months. It really is not. Democrats have only paid attention to it post-Russia invasion of Ukraine because then they thought they had a useful message. That message has failed. People don't think about this as a Putin gas in increase or as a Putin-inspired inflation thing. We've been experiencing it for almost a year now. They still don't have a message about that. If they fail at the midterms, part of that is because they cannot figure out how to talk to ordinary people about rising prices. It's that simple. How how, how could they figure that out? There is no way to talk to people about rising prices. I mean, the, the thing to do if you're really going to go back in history is to look at, at, at the last president who had to deal with an inflationary shock, right, which was Reagan. And basically, the year of the midterms in 82 was the year of the worst pain. 
because there were and people didn't think about politics in the same way that they do now, in part because there had never been a midterm result like the midterm result in 1994, which really reset the table for what you could expect in terms of shifts in political uh, sort of in the political landscape. And in fact, 1982 wasn't that bad for Republicans, relatively speaking, like, you know, they lost 26 seats in the House. Um which isn't, you know, 60 seats or 70 seats or something like that. But basically, I think the idea was people didn't think about the midterms versus the bid and all this and that. And, you know, basically there was a long-term game going on here, which was Volcker was going to kill off inflation and he was doing it in a way that was extremely painful. Unemployment got to 10%, you know, the, the, the interest rates got to 19 or 20 or 21%. Like it was horrible. But there was no solution to this problem, which, unlike the, unlike this inflationary spiral, had started almost a decade before. I mean, it crept up over time, really started after the oil shock in 1973. Um, but like it was it was it was the sort of thing that was leading people to think that, you know, we could be we could be Weimar Germany, that, you know, the dollar could end up being worth nothing people all over the world were were um were changing the controls in their currencies and deflating like like crazy and renaming <laughs> renaming their currencies in order to to deflate them and all that so i i, I don't know like uh if you're biden maybe you write off 2022 i mean the, the other way of looking at it is saying you know it's baked in the cake what we need is a strategy to save us in 2024 and there is this also historical analogy I mentioned before, which is, you know, Reagan was in Reagan was in bad odor in 1982 and he won 49 states in 1984 because the economy turned around. Clinton was in terrible odor in 1994, huge Republican wave. And he won by almost 10 points in 1996 as when the economy really turned around in the first quarter of 1996. And there was, I don't know, seven or eight percent growth. Um you know that that's what you want to look to um but you know obviously biden they, they don't they don't know what's happening what's happening is violating all of their priors you know which is that everything they do is good by definition therefore they should get credit for doing wonderful things I they have one economic prescription and that's subsidized demand <clears throat> that's right we've been doing for the last 30 years so when you have too much demand then you need negative pressure recessionary pressure to deflate the the economy reduce artificial demand and get prices back in line what do they do and, and so much of it is out of our control entirely out of our control like if if china's covid zero policy creates more incredible disruptions to the supply chain that increases right that lower supply will increase you know the demand will not have anywhere to go with supply we also have obviously the disruption in ukraine and whatever the ancillary world consequences are for that. So, you know, and that's nothing for which, you know, there is any control that Biden can assert any control. Although, you know, uh, an America that is seen somehow to triumph uh, in its support for Ukrainian freedom, the kind of, um, I don't know, evanescent or not evanescent, not the right word, but the kind of um, em emanations that come from, 
feeling like you did good and that you were up to something good happened that you were a part of and that showed that America was back and all of that. That could have very positive consequences in terms of national mood, uh, which, you know, that doesn't solve macroeconomic disruptions, but has a great deal to do with the way people feel about their future and their country and their and their current circumstances. But but regarding those macroeconomic conditions and to Noah's point, if the Biden administration is sort of hanging its hopes on eventually almost passively cycling out of our problems, which I think there's some indication that they do think they've they've, they've made statements like that. Uh, representatives of the administration have made statements like that in the past. Um, a recession is not what they want. Um, and if it's coming, they're not going to be cycling out of, I mean, we, it may literally cycle us out in time of, of inflation, but in terms of, um, the conditions of Americans and and the, the their sense of their uh, economic well-being, um, a recession is is damaging to them. Well, and I, I've been struck by uh, there was an interview over the weekend with uh, Fred Smith, head of FedEx in the Wall Street Journal, and I was struck by how well he could talk about the kinds of macroeconomic issues we're discussing, and that the president and his party should be able to discuss in this way. And he, I mean, he describes himself as like fiscally conservative but socially liberal. I mean, he actually just sounds like a lot of average Americans in terms of his political views. He's not extreme on either end. But he said, you know, like, we have to acknowledge we made mistakes by spending too much money. We're not talking about socialism when the government has to bail people out or not. We're talking about market-driven or government-driven economies. And I thought, oh, that's very simple. That's something people can understand. Do you want a free market with its ups and downs, with its risks and rewards, which most people in this country, I think, do want? Or do you want the government to be ever more heavy-handed in, in, in controlling things like supply, demand, wages, uh, and whether through you know direct legislation or regulation? And it, it, he was able to discuss these things in a way that I think our elected officials these days are kind of incompetent about. And, I'm, and it's on both sides of the aisle, really. We need better communicators about the economic risks. And, and to Abe's point, we need to be preparing the American people for the possibility of more future pain if we do go into a recession. What will that look like? What does that mean for jobs, wages, all these things? I mean, I don't know. You, I don't know whether you need to prepare people for that because they're already feeling it. I mean, if you think well, that yes. 70, if 70% of the public thinks the country is on the wrong track, they, they are preparing right. themselves for the fact we'll acknowledge that their there is future then, yeah. pain, right? Yeah. I mean, um, there is a problem with that, of course, which is that if you if you start telling people that we're going into recession, then you are you are the self putting prophecy. You help and, the right, recession and, along, right? Yes. I mean, you know, so you don't want to do that either. I mean, you don't but want the to lie. Ukraine experience suggests the public is willing to endure some economic hardships for the sake of, of a, a theorized good, you know, an outcome that would be uh, beneficial. Well, they say they are. They say they are, and there is some evidence that they are i mean we've we haven't seen protests riots right. any registration of dissatisfaction with the state of affairs owing to the invasion right. of ukraine well and because if you, of course if you we're put not in, in we shouldn't yeah. suggest that it, you know nobody wants a recession we shouldn't be cavalier about it recessions are hardships they hurt um and they can be have lasting consequences but if you tell people that that's how we get prices back in line at least there's a rationale when you have massive gyrations, uh, these cycles of growth and, and <coughs> excuse me, 
I mean, you have these kind of, you know, we have this, um, these, these moments of like huge economic re- recovery, right? Um, trough in 2008, 2009, it takes, you know, seven or eight years to get back, but even getting back is itself kind of an accomplishment. It doesn't seem like a lot of growth, you know, cause it's like 2% a year or something like that, but we have an enormous economy, right? It ends up at 22, 23, $24 trillion a year as an economy. It was 16 or 17, 15, 20 years ago. It's like, that's, that's a huge amount of growth, right? And so you're going to have these kind of every 10, 12 years, things are going to slow down. They're going to speed up all of that. And um, the difference here is that we were supposed to have tools in the shed um, that would minimize, that would level a lot of this out, right? So that, you know, that that's why the Fed exists is to sort of make sure that, Things are not too hot, not too cold. There's not too much currency chasing too few goods. There's not too too many goods chasing too little currency. That that if you can, you know, if uh, you know, fiddle around with the dials, you can kind of keep things level. And the Fed is given entirely up on that responsibility, right? It's there to kind of create perpetual growth, uh, or you know, do whatever you can. You know, the 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 hilarious moment in 2018 was when the uh, when the Fed announced that it was really going to start tightening again because there was just too much, and then the stock market declined, you know, by 20 percent in response to that, and then suddenly the Fed's determination to make sure that it was doing something to um, get rid of all of the government holdings that it had just went by the wayside because they didn't want to get blamed for a stock market recession. So, you know, we have this, we now are, if we're going to be in that position, we're going to have these moments every 10, 12 years where the economy not, not only may turn slow down extremely, but may like crash, you know, may have, there was a recession in 2009, right. Through 2010. And there will doubtless have to there will doubtless be a recession sometime now you know if biden is surreally lucky it'll somehow happen in 2025 but i mean he first of all he shows there's absolutely no reason to think he's lucky at all right i mean period uh and what he should do if he really wants to know what to do right now yeah well well, he a, a bird uh um uh i don't know how to put it he was giving a speech and a, and a bird flew over him and, and dropped something Crapped on, on him. him. Yeah. Isn't that considered lucky? I mean, that that's, that's his version of luck. <laughs> if, if anything is, well, you know, he was Only actually turned he turned around and looked, wanted to shake hands with the bird and then the bird was, wasn't there. I don't know if you guys have seen that footage of him at the speech. Okay. See, so I, I, I will not, I'm not the one to, de- to defend the, his, his advancing age and seeming uh, lack of focus. But I, I read that as him turning and gesturing to, there were people on either the, the stage was like, there were people on the sides of the stage as well as in front of him. I read it as him like turning and gesturing to them. Maybe I'm just being too sympathetic, but I didn't I, read it. I watched much. it like three times and I can't agree with you on that. Okay. Like it really was a, he seemed very out of it. I mean, he did strange. Kind of wander. Mo- it was yeah. a strange moment, and it's not because a moment there was a, that, you know. Yeah, there was a mixture of frustration with it. I that 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 I that I sort of read. Yeah, that, where, mm-hmm. yeah. Like where there was damn it, there was supposed to be someone here, a hand yeah, here for, for me, me to, to shake, shake my hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, th- this is common down. I mean, if this was a one-off, it, you know, if it was like Trump shuffling down the ramp, that would be one thing. But this yeah. happens more often than not in his public speaking. I mean, you know. The commercial in 2024 that will be the compendium of Biden senility moments that, you know, some 
dark money group is going to run, you know, spend a billion dollars running will be that's going to be something. <laughs> it's going to be something. I, that that's all I can say. I don't think he's senile, but it's you know you 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 stitch five or six of them together, and it's not going to be good. I was going to say that if Biden really wanted to know what to do to get himself right on the economy, he should be reading our friend David Bonson's book. There's no free lunch. Two hundred and fifty economic truths available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you get your books. Uh, David runs the Bonson Group, which has three and a half. A billion dollars under management, and he uh, knows whereof he speaks. He is a he is an extremely thoughtful, intellectually driven money manager who combines uh, a deep knowledge not only of, of philosophy and economics, but also theology and theological issues to bring together in a kind of uh, a daily reader um, the key ideas that undergird our economic activity, which of course means that undergird all human activity, uh, and, uh, how ordered Liberty is the way that human beings can flourish, can have meaning and can do what is best for themselves and their families and, and live a prosperous life, both, uh, both materially and spiritually. So that's David Bonson's there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths uh, available to you, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever you get your reading material. I strongly, strongly recommend it. And let me talk to you about our advertiser today, Policy Genius. If someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, an aging parent, even a business partner, you need Life insurance and policy genius is your one-stop shop to find the insurance you need at the right price. Um, in minutes, you can compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price at policygenius.com. All you got to do is answer a few questions and you could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with policy genius. The team of licensed experts at policy genius are on hand throughout the entire process to help you understand your options and make decisions with confidence. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. Whether you're just starting to shop or have questions about your active policy, they're your independent advocates offering unbiased advice. They won't sell your info to third parties. They don't add on extra fees. They have options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and placed over $120 billion in coverage. So head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. So I teased at the beginning of the show that we wanted to talk about a particularly egregious example of the New York, of, uh, of a New York Times um, outrage. And that outrage was published on Friday on the eve of the first night of Passover um, by the writer Shalom Auslander. Um, an op-ed called, In This Time of War, I Propose We Give Up God. I think it is safe to say that if a piece like this, I mean, I think a lot of people have said this who responded with outrage, that, um, you know, this is like Charlie Hebdo level. Uh, if Charlie Hebdo was uh, making fun of, you know, uh, of Islam in a way that encouraged, you know, that, 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 uh, that uh, raised such outrage <laughs> that there were, you know, horrible terroristic attack is a horrible terroristic attack on its offices and all of that. Um, uh, this is 
or wh- however you want to slice it, this is this is no less egregiously and horrendously offensive. And the fact that its author has a particularly Jewish name was raised uh, ultra orthodox in Muncie, New York, and is actually the nephew of the former uh, head of Yeshiva University. Um, that not only isn't cover, which I think the New York Times thinks it is. Uh, oh, well, who are we to say that Shalom Auslander's views are not uh, acceptable? His name is Shalom Auslander. Um, but uh, I mean, this is a, this is literally as anti-Semitic a piece of writing as I have seen in. I I wouldn't say my lifetime, but I mean it's it's very very serious. Um, let me just quote a little bit here. Two aspects of the Passover story have troubled me since I was first taught them long ago in an Orthodox yeshiva in Muncie, New York. See, credentials. I studied Orthodox yeshiva. Can't call me an anti-Semite, right? I was eight years old, and as the holiday approached, our rabbi commanded us to open our Chumashim, or Old Testaments, to the book of Exodus to get us in the holiday spirit. He told us gruesome tales of torture and persecution. The Egyptians, he told us, used the corpses of Jewish slaves in their buildings. You mean they used slaves to build their buildings, I asked, and the slaves died from work? No, said the rabbi. They put Jewish bodies into the walls and used them as bricks. My father was something of a handyman at the time, and this sure seemed to me a serious violation of basic building codes, not to mention a surefire way to lose a home sale. In the, is this brick, the interested couple asks? No, no, says the realtor. That's corpse. But just as troubling, even more so today in light of the brutal slaughter taking place in Ukraine, were the plagues themselves. God, the rabbi said, struck all the Egyptians with his wrath, not just Pharaoh and his soldiers, Egyptians, young and old, innocent and guilty, suffered locusts and frogs, hail and darkness, beasts running wild, water becoming blood, mothers nursing their babies, the rabbi explained, found their breast milk had turned to blood. Yay, my classmates cheered. But Pharaoh, the story continues, still wouldn't continue to relinquish his slaves. And then... Um, Surely, I wondered, there were some Egyptians who didn't whip Jews, who didn't have anything against Jews at all. Surely, there were Egyptians horrified by slavery, Egyptians who disagreed with Pharaoh as often as we do with our own leaders. Everyone, I asked the rabbi, he struck everyone. Everyone, the rabbi said. Yay, my classmates cheered. Okay, I was raised strictly Orthodox, old school, shuttle, fabulous. Every year at the beginning of the Seder, we welcome in the hungry and poor Jews who can't afford to have a Seder themselves. It's a wonderfully human gesture. A few short hours of God later, at the end of the Seder, we open the front door and call out to him, pour out thy wrath upon the nations that did not know you. And God does with plagues and floods, with fire and fury on the young and the old, the guilty and the innocent. And we humans made in his image do the same with fixed wing bombers and cluster bombs, with self-propelled mortars and thermobaric rocket launchers. Um, so the Jewish God is a mass murderer. And uh, Jews cheer, thrilled to the horrible deaths of the Egyptians, particularly his fellow eight-year-old classmates who cheer, whereas he, Sholem Auslander, even at the age of eight, is horrified and disgusted by this, uh, you know, elementary, uh, you know, this, this founding story of, 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 uh, of civilization and re- renewal and release. And this piece was published in the most important English language news John, source in the world. John, you, you skipped, I think, the worst part. Ah, go ahead. Uh, at the before the final paragraph, he says, and this, by the way, given his supposed credentials, this is this is made. This is that his credentials established. This is the worst part. Only a Jew could make could could make this so offensive. 
He says, killing gods is an idea I can get behind. Thus, endorsing the 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 charge of deicide against the Jews. And this this guy, can I add, there's a little background here because this is just a recycling of something he's been doing for decades now. He came out with a memoir in like early 2000s at some point called A Foreskin's Lament. Um, and it was all about how, oh, look, I, uh, again, like his street cred is that he was raised Orthodox. That's fine. But the picture on the, I remember this because I remember being kind of appalled. There was this sort of glowing reviews of this book and he was like a David Sedaris knockoff. And, you know, it had a picture of a pig. It was the picture of a pig on the cover of the of the memoir, and it was called A Foreskin's Lament, and it was all the same stuff. It was like, oh, my God, we're supposed to cheer a God who destroys everybody for us because we're so great. It was just appalling, and it was it was supposed to be edgy. It was supposed to be it's exactly the narrative that readers of The New York Times who are very uncomfortable with people who are, who are observant and faithful in their religion would love to see, which is like, oh, look, he's rebelled. He's rebelled because he knows it's bad, and he's going to explain to us how bad it is. So the he's only, been doing this for some time. The only thing I can think of that would make people who came across this essay think it was inoffensive. Um, and, you know, perhaps we it's overly charitable to suspend disbelief in the sense or provide, you know, cover for the people who published this thing. But that it's just such elementary dime store secular theology. It's why, why if there is a, a loving God, why would he allow bad things to happen? Why the God of the Old Testament do these things? And that's the sort of thing that you reconcile when you're five at your very first introduction to elementary theological thought and the concept of free will. So if you're like utterly secular and have never been exposed to these concepts, maybe you're maybe you think this is valuable insight. It is also a defamation of the entire Passover Seder process, should we want to refer to something like that. So I've been going to Seders for, you know. (laughs) better part of 60 years to a year every year and the whole point of the satyrs is to discuss the passover story and you are supposed to you are supposed to dispute the details of the passover story including are the plagues fair was did god go too far was the murder of the you know was the slaying of the egyptian firstborn is that something that is you know that we can sort of look at the idea that, you know, everybody else in his, in his third grade, you know, hater classroom was cheering at the, at the, at the death of the firstborn is cute. Of course, it's also horseshit since he's, this whole thing is just a, you know, he's again, it's funny because it's an op-ed. So it's like a, you know, he, he uses quotation marks, right? So I, you know, from memories from 40 years ago about how, what the rabbi said and what the kids said, which I guess uh, sometimes we're supposed to take as absolute uh, gospel when an op-ed features actual quotation. And then sometimes we're supposed to take it as though we're, you know, fictionalized truth, which is what we're supposed to hear. I don't really know where that line is drawn, uh, but uh, Jews cheering without question, every event that happened in the course of the Exodus is a, is a, is a foul slander against the against what happens every year at seder where the more one tells the story of the exodus it says in the haggadah the more praiseworthy he is there is a story in the middle of the haggadah about four uh you know uh, ancient rabbis you know just after the romans 
you know, rabbis are in B'nai Brak, which is which is a revived town in Jerusalem, uh, sitting around, and they are so deep within the weeds of what was going on in uh, in the in in the seder. Uh, that they stay up all night talking and they never go to bed and their students have to come in and say, hey, it's time to go do morning prayers. Like you, you haven't gone to bed. And this is this is the most praiseworthy version of the Seder. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the complicated moral frame of the story of the Exodus, which is a very difficult story. It's a difficult story for moderns. And it's a difficult story. It was a difficult story then too. Yeah, like so... Was that necessary? And the idea is, well, you don't question God's will, but you know, Jews do nothing but questions God's will. Jude, Judaism is a religion of disputation and argument. It's, you know, it's uh, it's oral law is a is a record of the Talmud is a record of people discussing the finer points of Jewish law and disagreeing about them and not coming to a final, absolutely, you know, determined conclusion about how you're supposed to do X, Y, or Z in hard and difficult cases. And and the Hebrew Bible is a story about Jews constantly uh, rejecting, straying, uh, not not letting themselves be corralled, refusing the, the commandments of God. And, and you know, it's that's, yeah. that is the story. So um, I, I just want to go back to The New York Times. So it it published this this piece, and as I say, there is no way on earth that they would publish a piece that said anything remotely comparable. You know, uh, would they publish on the on the eve of Ramadan? Would they publish Ayan Hirsi Ali talking about um, you know forced marriage and general you know and 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 general mutilation? Well, they I kind of doubt it. They published one piece, this one opinion piece this weekend about Good Friday. And one about Easter. They were both from people of faith endorsing the belief in Good Friday and, 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 and in Easter. They were they were, both were political. The Good Friday one was about what what good what we can see in Christ's uh, uh, Jesus' struggle on Good Friday, what that says about the experience of black bodies um, uh, being broken and what future their hope there is. And then the one about Easter was was kind of somewhat similar, I guess, in that it was, a, but it was by a woman who was talking about um, uh, that uh, um, when people say uh, he is risen, it is it is real. It has to be real, um, and that and, and it's being real is sort of what gets her through. Um, so to see these essentially these sort of endorsements of of Good Friday and Easter um, up against this this this. Jewish writers saying I can get behind uh, killing gods uh, for Passover is just extraordinary. I mean, it just goes goes to this uh, general sense among uh, uh, American elites, New York elites, and even Jewish elites that there really isn't any real risk. There's no real threat to Jews. Jews. Jews don't exist under any threat. And you know what? If some guy gets punched in the back of the head in Borough Park, you know, he's wearing weird hats and he's got weird earlocks and he, you know, he's wearing a he's wearing a black suit and, you know, he's kind of asking for it in some fashion. The real problem is us. It's like this disgusting religion that we have here 
and we're just uh, you know religion in general is stupid and this religion is kind of gross and i don't bear any connection whatsoever i ag sulzberger um bear no connection whatsoever to those people so it's fine for my paper to publish whatever garbage anti-semitic horseshit that i can get in my hands and spew out because I'm not worried that anyone's going to come into my office with a machine gun and shoot everybody in the office. But I sure am, you know, don't think I didn't get the lesson from Charlie Hebdo. So uh, this is where we are. And, you know, it's like, uh, you know, is it risky to be a Jew in America in 20? 22 well it's not risky on a day-by-day basis mostly unless you are somebody who is you know wears a fully identifiable set of clothing but on the other hand you know every six to eight months somebody goes into a synagogue and starts shooting and if you think the atmosphere of of the of the of the country's most important uh paper saying that judaism is a worthless faith and anybody who practices it is a celebrant of mass murder uh yeah, blood is on your hands. That's how blood gets on your hands. The creation of an atmosphere in which things become thinkable is what elites who run newspapers and things do. It is one of the most disgraceful moments, uh, you know, of American journalism in my in my lifetime. And uh, uh, it's fine. I guess you fire uh, you fire James Bennett for saying that you know. The military should prevent uh, cities from being set on fire. Um, but Katie Kingsbury, uh, his successor, uh, is seems to be under no jeopardy for having published a you know a work that would have put a smile on Hitler's face. And with that, we will call a halt to the proceedings today and return to you tomorrow for Abe, Noah, and Christina. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.